On the, in the evenings, Jeremy and I are doing this series on Master's Class In or Master's Class On, and we're looking at some of the priorities of Jesus' teaching specifically. Jesus came not just to seek and save us, but also to teach us and to illustrate to us what kind of people that he wants us to be. And so tonight we're going to talk about the Master Class in Living with Human Beings. What's the very first excuse given in the Bible? The woman you gave me, she did this. It's her fault. And I'm going to tell you something. That excuse, in myriad variations, has been used to make us feel better about our own shortcomings ever since. If I could just be with people who were better people, I promise I would be a better person. You know, it's the people around me. I mean, I'm trying to be honest, but the people around me are just... I'm trying to do the right thing, but the people around me are doing the wrong thing. If I do this, then people are going to take advantage. It's always, always other people's fault. And that's not even false, really. It is other people's fault a lot of times. And Jesus says, yeah, fine, the world is fallen. I know that. I came here, remember? What are you going to do about it? As my followers, as people who I have saved and who I have freed from sin, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be the last person to be righteous? Or are you going to be the first? You're going to be surrounded by people who are sometimes good, often bad. What are you going to do about that? And, and he gives not just platitudes. He gives very specific instructions about how to manage living among human beings who are sometimes good, but often pretty rotten, and how it is we're supposed to deal with that situation. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, before we get to the passage we had read tonight, turn over. To, I'm going to have you flip around a little bit tonight, and that's okay, I hope. Turn over to Luke chapter 14 and look at verses 7 through 11. One of my favorite stories uh, about Julius Caesar, it's, I, it's so favorite to me that I just really want it to be true, but I don't know if it is. Suetonius, Suetonius tells this story, and he, who knows, you know, he, he tells a lot of stuff. Um, but basically, Julius Caesar and some of his leaders were going through the Alps back to Italy, and they saw this miserable little village. I mean, it's just a dinky little a uh, mud track, crossing mud track village, just a few houses and a few people. And one of his, one of his uh, aides said, do you think in this village people vie back and forth for who's going to be on top? You know, who's going to be the big man in this little pigsty of a village and who's going to have to take second place and third place? And, and Caesar, far from being amused by that image, says, I'll tell you one thing. I would rather be first in this village than second in Rome. It tells you something about his character, and it tells you something about the human heart. We hate, hate. It, it gnaws at us 
to take second place to other people. It not, we, we have this burning envy that wants to flame up in our breast whenever we see someone else getting... We can be in perfect comfort and actually a wonderful situation and the pleasure we should feel and the thankfulness to God that we should feel can be snuffed out because we look across the aisle and we see someone who seems to be getting more honor and more status than we are. How much of the world's trouble traces back to this source in the human heart? The scrabbling for status. The scrabbling for who gets to consider themselves top dog and who has to take second place. How much? How much, how much trouble in families? How much trouble in churches? How much trouble in you know, where you work, the organizations that you work. How much trouble between nations traces back to this source? Who's on top? Who's underneath? Jesus knows that's true. He knows that about the human heart. Remember, he's subject to every temptation we are while he's living in the flesh. He knows what that feels like. And he opts for a bizarre solution to that problem. Every one of us lives in a society where the natural, normal flow of things is to scrabble and climb to try and, you know, get your head above those around you. And Jesus gives us this advice. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honors, saying to them, when you're invited to someone, uh, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who is invited, you both, will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up higher. And you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, I mean, it's practical advice. It's interesting advice. He's playing off of the, the games that everybody plays. But he says, for you, my followers, living in a fallen world where the people around you are going to be at all levels of, of emotional and moral development, they're going to act in all kinds of ways. You don't even start playing the status game. These status games that people ruin their lives over sometimes. These status games that people wreck their marriages over or wreck their friendships over sometimes. Don't even start playing the status games. You immediately take the low status. You start from there. I am not even playing this game. It's an amazing teaching. It's puzzling to people. You're, he he kind of tells the story of the host coming in and going, what are you doing sitting down there? Shouldn't you have been struggling to get a higher? Move up a little. Uh, people will just freak out because you're not doing what's normal. And eventually they're going to want to know, well, why aren't you normal? And you're going to have the opportunity to say, I'm not normal. I'm saved. I'm saved by Jesus Christ. And, and He has taught me 
that I don't care about these status games that drive us crazy and rob us of our happiness and gratitude here in this life. Opt out of the status competition that dominates so much of human society. You want to live well with other human beings, opt out of those status games. Turn over, go over to Matthew chapter 5. Go over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 21 and 22 and then a little bit more in a second. Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That is a devastating passage to me. Just driving down the highway, I violate this passage. Reading Facebook. I can't get through the fourth comment on almost any Facebook post without violating, at least in my heart, this passage. Because people are so stupid. Sorry, I said that word. I shouldn't say that. Jesus says... Just like the status trap, anger is also a trap. Anger is also a trap. There's a quote um, from Toni Morrison. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch it. But, but basically she said, people constantly think anger is interesting and powerful and, you know, uh, sort of intelligent. Anger, in my experience, Toni Morrison said, is none of those things. You give yourself over to anger and you lose power. You lose intelligence. You lose in cunning. You lose status. Anger is powerlessness. You've given yourself up to something. She says, I need all of my abilities. I need all of my skill to make it through life. And I don't want to give myself over to anger. I thought that was an interesting insight because I think that's true. So much of life is marred by hot or cold anger. Hot anger is the anger, what, what Paul calls wrath, where I just, I just launch, I just let it all fly out of my mouth. I just tell you everything I've been wanting to tell you about what's wrong with you and the rest of the world's probably your fault too, and I just let you have it. Cold anger is that seething, for, for whatever reason, I don't feel like I can say what I feel or act on what I feel, but I just simmer. And Jesus says, you let that rot in your heart. How are you different from a murderer? Are you really that much more righteous than a person who takes a life when in your mind you're killing a person over and over and over again? Jesus says we need to find ways to get out of the anger trap. And he gives us some advice about how to do that. It's interesting. Look in the very next two verses, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. 
he says, it may be somebody's angry with you. Do this in that case. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there's someone, you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Isn't that an astonishing teaching? That one always blows my mind. That one just freaks me out. How much of a hassle was it to be ready to offer a gift at the altar? In the old regime and under the law of Moses, how big a deal was that? It was a big deal. For most people, it happened three times a year. You know, I always imagine some poor guy from Galilee, three days he schleps this goat, you know, all the way down the Jordan Valley, he comes up the, the road from Jericho, and he finally hot sweaty goat and you know he cleans himself up as best he can and he's standing there and they said i mean a contemporary results in the first century said sometimes like on the day of passover or whatever the line would be all day long people would just be standing there all day long so you know i, I i'm finally here and now i'm standing in line all day heat of the sun four o'clock in the afternoon i'm getting a little close kind of like disneyland you know you, you're hoping you're going to get to the ride and and Jesus says, even in that moment, when you've gone to all that trouble to worship God, if you realize that you've got a brother you are not at peace with, they're mad at you about something, you've committed some sin against them or they believe you have, drop what you're doing to go worship God and go be reconciled to your brother. This is where Jesus puts teeth into what John says, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you're fooling yourself. Go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. And then come back and properly worship God. Anger is such a dangerous thing. I don't want to leave reasons for anger festering between me and someone that I'm connected to by Jesus Christ. I just don't want to do it. Jesus says, you're going to be surrounded by people who don't act like what I'm telling you to do. That's not your problem. Your problem is, are you going to follow my commandments? I want you to be different. I want you to begin to change the world by the way you treat the problems that cause anger between individuals. You go and be reconciled. What if you're the one that's mad? Well, by logic, this says, then you wait for them to come to you. You know? Jesus says, if I've got something against you, you're supposed to come, even if it's in the middle of church, you're supposed to come and be reconciled to me. And that's true. Jesus does say that. But guess what else he says? Turn over to Matthew chapter 18, which is what we read for our passage today. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, that is, you're the wronged party, you're the one that's been hurt, you've been sinned against. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Well, how is that fair, Jesus? If somebody's mad at me, I have to go to them and try and reconcile it. If I'm mad at somebody, I have to go and reconcile when is it their turn to come and reconcile? And what does Jesus say? It's always your turn. 
Who has to make the first move in a severed relationship? You do, Jesus says. The other person does too, but you're not the other person. You're you. You make the first move. It's just tough. It's tough to be a follower of Jesus. I was in a conversation with somebody who said, you know, I just think I'd be so much happier if I could have faith. And I said, oh, man. Sometimes my faith makes me happier. Sometimes it's just so hard to be a Christian. And passages like this are so tough. It's so tough to try and do these things. But Jesus says, the world is a fallen place. People tear themselves up over anger that they let fester year after year. And they let relationships totally go sour and totally go awful because they just don't have the courage to go and confront one-on-one. Jesus says, you go. You go talk. When I've been wronged by you, what is the fallen thing to want to do? What is my natural inclination? If George has wronged me, which, by the way, he never has, but if he does... What's the natural thing to do? I'm going to tell Michelle. I'm going to tell Lynn. I'm going to tell Chuck. I'm going to tell Gary. I'm going to tell everybody but George. I'm going to talk, 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 talk. About all the bad that George has done to everybody except George. Now, who could fix the problem? Who might even correct, correct, who might even correct my misunderstanding of what really took place? George? Who could actually achieve reconciliation? George? If I talk to him? And yet, I don't have the guts to do that. I just want to grouse and complain. And in grousing and complaining, I probably slander George's name. I certainly do the work of Satan, of spreading bad news rather than good news. Jesus says, you go to the person who has offended you. You go to the person. If they sinned against you and you're really convinced that it's wrong, you're convinced enough that you feel like talking to other people about how bad it is, go to that person. Go to that person. I don't think Jesus is kidding about this stuff. I think he's actually right. This could make a huge difference. And he encourages us to begin to act out in a Christ-like way in our most commonplace human relationships. So that the world, at least where Christians are, the world begins to reflect the light of God and not the darkness of Satan. Deal with the anger trap. Also, turn over to John 13. John chapter 13. This connects up with that whole status thing. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus elsewhere teaches, you know what it's like, you know how the leaders of the world act. You know how the kings and the great people of the world act. They are happiest when everybody is bowing and scraping to them. They are happiest when they can collect the largest number of people who have to serve them. That's the way the world runs. He says, I want you to do this. That's actually the moral of the story that he draws just a few verses down in this chapter. I am your master, he says. I am your Lord, and I have washed your feet because I want you to wash one another's feet. Jesus says, don't strive to be the one served. Strive to serve. Strive to serve. Yeah, but that's a job somebody else should be doing. That's not a job I should be doing. Jesus says, I don't care. Yeah, they probably should be doing it. Are you going to be the last person to do what's right? Or are you going to be the first person? Are you going to wait until the entire world is converted before you start acting like me? Or are you going to start acting like me right now? That's what Jesus says. Right now, are you willing to be humble enough to do the jobs nobody else wants to do? To do the jobs that are not appreciated and that people mock and that people look down on and that you get no status from and you get very little thanks for doing? Are you willing to do that because Jesus said to do it? That's what he's asking. Jesus says, yes, it's a fallen world. And yes, the people around you are messed up in all kinds of ways. And if you wait for all of them to get right before you get right, you will be waiting until I come again. Right now, today, right now, this week, you can begin to change the world where you are. And you can change it in the way Jesus Christ taught Be the person that Jesus Christ commands you to be in the way you deal with other human beings. If you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ, who died so that you could be set free and so that you can begin to live this more empowered life that he's describing, that you can live in a way that reflects the glory of God. If you need that, and if you never put on Jesus Christ in baptism, or you need prayers for more power to do that, then we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.